expected people dying in the past 24-hour reporting period. You're listening to the news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3 on Thursday the 17th of March. Happy St. Patrick's Day. It's also Fed Day. And this is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates for the first time since 2018 to combat surging consumer price inflation, which hit a 40-year high of 7.9% in February, far above the Fed's 2% target. The U.S. Central Bank said it was lifting its benchmark rate by 25 basis points and signaled plans for further rate rises in the coming months. Hong Kong Financial Secretary Paul Chan said the city hopes to bring the pandemic under control in the coming two to three months with quarantine-free cross-border travel restarting in the second half of the year. He also revealed that the government was planning a high-level investment summit to coincide with the Hong Kong Sevens, which was pushed back to November the 4th due to the pandemic. Mr Chan said the idea is to bring over 100 finance leaders to Hong Kong. We want to bring them over for them to see the situation for themselves, to bring about business and investment opportunities, he said. However, he failed to provide a time frame for reopening the city's borders to the rest of the world, saying the local vaccination rate would be an influential factor. Mr Chan also addressed the recent plunge in Hong Kong's stock market. He said despite all this volatility, our market has been functioning well and orderly. There is no systematic risk that we need to worry about. He attributed the sharp sell-off as being largely due to a downward adjustment of tech stock prices. Mr Chan said the potential mass delisting of an estimated 240 Chinese companies in the US had put the city in an advantageous position has heightened U.S. scrutiny on these firms, could see them move as much as 90% of their market value onto the city's bourse. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Andrew Sullivan from Outset Global. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold at SafePro Group. Money Talk on Radio on Wall Street, the S&P 500 briefly fell into negative territory after the interest rate increase, but recovered as Jerome Powell provided an upbeat view of the, of the state of the U.S. economy. Benchmark index advanced 2.2% to 4,358. The Dow added 519 points, ending the day at 34,063. The Nasdaq Composite Index surged 3.8% to 13,437. The Pan-European Stock 600 index jumped 3.1% higher. And in London, the FTSE 100 climbed 1.6%. A historic rout in Chinese equities that's erased $1.5 trillion in value in two days was halted yesterday after China's State Council vowed to ensure the capital markets are running smoothly, according to a report of the meeting by Xinhua. In a meeting chaired by Vice Premier Liu He, it was vowed that China will keep the stock market stable and support overseas share listings, according to Xinhuao. He encouraged long-term institutional investors to increase their shareholdings while promising to closely communicate with the Hong Kong regulator to maintain stability in the city's financial markets. 
Liu He's remarks lit a fire under Chinese equity equity markets. The Hang Seng Index jumped 1,672 points by the close, or 9.1 percent, to 20,087 in its best day since October 2008. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index soared as much as 12 and a half percent on Wednesday. That's its biggest gain since the global financial crisis. The Hang Seng Tech Index surged by a record 22.2 percent. Beaten down stocks such as Alibaba rocketed by 27 percent and Tencent by 23 percent. JD.com surged by almost 36 percent. Mainland Chinese stocks also saw robust gains as the Shanghai Composite climbed three and a half percent to three thousand one hundred and seventy, and the Shenzhen Components Index soared three point six percent. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil dropped half a percent to ninety-eight dollars and six cents a barrel. Gold climbed zero point four percent to one thousand nine hundred twenty-six dollars an ounce. And following the Fed decision, U.S. Treasury bonds slid and yields jumped higher as traders anticipated more aggressive tightening. The yield on the two-year notes jumped nine basis points to one point nine four percent, and at one stage came within a whisker of two percent. The benchmark ten-year Treasury yield climbed four basis points to 2.19 percent, its highest level since 2019. However, thirty-year yields dropped two basis points to 2.46 percent as traders started to price in stagflation. The U.S. dollar index tumbled 0.6 percent lower. The euro is at one dollar ten and a quarter cents. The buck's trading at 118, 118.8 Japanese yen. The British pound is worth one dollar thirty-one and a half cents and ten Hong Kong dollars and twenty-eight cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.36 and a half versus the dollar in offshore markets this morning, and Bitcoin rose four percent to forty-one thousand dollars. Around Asian stock markets this morning in Australia, the ASX 200 is currently up 1.1 percent. Stocks in Japan have just opened. The Nikkei 225 has jumped two and three quarter percent at the open.、Uh, the Kosby in South Korea is up 1.6 percent, and the epic rebound in Hong Kong stocks is expected to continue today after the Nasdaq Golden Dragon Index of U.S. listed Chinese stocks surged 33 percent overnight in New York. ADRs trading in the U.S. suggest the Hang Seng could power as much as 1,300 points higher when trading starts later this morning, which would put the Hang Seng Index at 21,400. It's 8:10. Much to talk about. So let's welcome our guests over in our Queensway studio. We have personal wealth advisor Enzio Von Farr. Morning, Enzio. Morning to you, Peter. And also with us is Andrew Sullivan, managing director at Outset Global. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. So let's go through what the Federal Reserve has done. It's raised interest rates for the first time since 2014,、uh, 2018.、Um, the U.S. Central Bank said it was lifting its benchmark rate by 25 basis points, and that will push the target range for the bank's key rates to a quarter to a half of a percent. Projections released after the Fed's meeting, known as the dot plot, show officials expect six more interest rate rises in 2022, in, in addition to the March rise, which will take interest rates to almost two percent by the end of the year. 
The FOMC wasn't unanimous. James Bullard, president of the St. Louis Fed, favoured a larger half a point rise. And policymakers also signalled at least three increases for 2023, which will bring the Fed fund rate to 2.8%, above the neutral position that neither boosts nor constrains growth. Fed officials also revised their economic forecasts. Their main median estimate for year-end core inflation, which is measured in their books by the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, is now risen to 4.1%, up from their forecast of 2.7% in December. And the median estimate for U.S. economic growth is now down to 2.8% from the 4% pace projected in December. Um, Enzio, first of all, kick off. What, what do you make of all of that? Well, it's the usual knitting needle argument. They're trying to use demand-pull policies for cost-push problems. Um, just a couple of things on this. Why, why there are many cost bottlenecks in the states other than the stuff that we all know about oil and, and, and that kind of stuff. Two-thirds of consumer expenditure in America is on services. Now, services cannot be controlled. The price of services cannot be controlled by fiddling around with interest rates. 58% of America's labor force does not want to work. Does not want to work. That how, means, how do you come up with that number? I take a look at the labor force participation rate of 62%. That's the, that's the amount of people who want to, who are in the, who are participating in the labor force. And then we work it backwards that the unemployment rate is 4%. So, so 62 minus 4, my maths is getting a bit rusty, would be 58%. So say half of the guys don't want to work. So you again have a labor force bottleneck coming around. Thirdly, you have terrible human capital. The middle class education is awful. So there are many, many supply constraints that just cannot be solved by jacking up interest rates. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. Um, Andrew, I'm wondering what you make of this. This was a, a hawkish um, statement that came out, wasn't it? They're now talking about seven rate rises this, uh, this, this year, uh, including the one that we've just seen. Is the market prepared for this? Well, I think, I mean, there were times in the last couple of weeks where we thought they would start with the 50 basis point or maybe even higher. I mean, the main reason that they haven't done that is probably Ukraine and the uh, the input from that. But, I mean, you know, they, they told us that inflation was transitory. They realised they were wrong and they've taken a U-turn, which is, which is quite encouraging to see. Um, but, and I think, you know, going forward, you know, Powell has definitely left the, the door open for being data responsive. And I think, as Enzio says, I mean, their biggest problem is going to be the impact on, um, on unemployment going forward uh, and how they're going to, uh, you know, uh, manage the, you know, to sort of square the circle uh, when it comes to keeping the economy going and, and in, you know, not seeing a huge rise in unemployment. Let me pick up that point you just made about the Fed's forecast, because in what in just over a year, the Fed has gone from forecasting no mm. inflation, then saying there was some inflation, but it was transitory. Then it said inflation should drop to two and a half percent. Now suddenly it's talking about four point one percent in twenty twenty two. It's been hopelessly wrong, hasn't it? Well, I think you know, I don't think anybody's really managed to forecast inflation correctly because you know nobody has been in the situation yes. of seeing the such a you know. COVID causing bottleneck supply chain problems. Um, you know, we've seen then the, you know, a, a new war in, in Europe. Um, these are all completely new factors um, 
to to any economist coming into the uh, into the game plan. But just to to add to build on what what um, Andrew was saying, the inflation forecast has been jacked up by fifty two percent from two point one to four point seven, and GDP has been moved down by thirty percent from four to two point eight. So that's a slight um, change of view, perhaps like our government <laughs> here. Oops, a, oops. It's a big change uh, yeah. of view, isn't it? It's a big change, and, and the Fed now has moved. Traditionally, the Fed's role was to sort of try and forecast inflationary pressures and get on top of them. But now it's chasing it. And the last time CPI was 7.9 percent, back in 1980, mm. the Fed funds rate was 13%. So isn't it still way, way behind the curve? Well, it again tells me, I'm, I will harp on about this, that the the, the oil pr- crisis of the 73, 79, 80-ish, that was a lot of that stagflation was again because of a supply bottleneck and they're trying to take a demand tool, like trying to cure a, a um, cancer using Diflam. It doesn't mm. work. I think the other thing you've got to also realise, though, is that you know, economists use historical data, which is backward-looking, and they use previous models. Uh, and a lot of those previous models just don't fit into the situation yes. that we find today. Mm. I mean, we have seen huge advances in technology. You know, trying to forecast inflation when, you know, in the old days you could just go down to the supermarket and see where the mm-hmm. prices were going up. Mm. Now you've got online taking a whole load of that. Um, cost competitiveness to a whole new degree, which makes an, an awful lot more difficult for the, uh, the for the economists to really get a feel on what prices it, are doing. And two thirds of it is services inflation, which tends, which goes straight into Andrew's point of just the measurement of this thing. What do you make of the market reaction to this? Part of the yield curve is now inverted, the five to ten year mm. part of the yield curve, which. Many traders will say typically is a warning that a recession is coming. Mm. And the market's now also pricing in two rate cuts in 2024. So the market seems to be suggesting that the Fed is making a major policy error here. Well, I think they're, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I used to work a lot with traders. So I don't think that their, their, their ability to squint out to 2024 is any better than yours or mine, frankly, or even that of our dog. Um, so, um, I, I th- you know, in all respect, I, th- I think that these things are very trading-driven um, in the short term based on arbitrage, and a lot of that is now being done by algorithms um, so that you don't really even have a market anymore. Where I'm going with this is that I wouldn't take this as too much of a gospel truth. I think, though, that if the yield curve were to flatten, which is my thing, it's going to flatten because with the Fed buying, or the Treasury, excuse me, buying less and less paper, the supply of paper goes up price, so surprisingly the price goes down. So the yield goes up, but then the, the short rates also go up, so the yield curve flattens, and that always is a bad sign for growth. And I think, you know, from a trading point of view, you know, realistically the traders are looking at what's going to happen in the next few days and, and trying to reposition their books for that. That's yes. their immediate need. They will look at the further out, uh, but they're also very, very aware that, that the Fed isn't saying that this is it. The Fed has always said this is it until the next meeting. Uh, mm. They will be data yes. dependent on the data we see in the meantime, and traders will react to that. But most traders are probably, you know, realistically just thinking what they're going to do for the next couple of weeks. And the impact here on Hong Kong of these rate rises? Well, I think, I mean, normally it would have had a big impact, but, you know, the China's announcements yesterday have probably precluded that. Um, and they, and to an extent they had to because, I mean, this, as we've said, you know, the, 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 the impact on the overseas bonds is going to be huge. 
uh, interest rates are going up. That's going to make the developers a lot, the developers with offshore debt, a lot more liable. Uh, and so China really needs to uh, find some way of calming the markets and giving the markets support. Uh, and I think that's the key thing that they only talked about supporting and making them stable. They're not looking at really pushing these markets higher. They just want stability. They just want to stop anything that could, you know, create social unrest. And that's uh, th a lot of that is j j ties in with something else that I've been thinking about, which is that when people say, "Well, there will be a few debt defaults," uh, as we're seeing, it's not really where the action is. The action is going to be in the shadow banking system, where people simply cannot foresee what the ricochet effects of that will be, and that will take another hammering onto the onto the Fed funds rate and onto the bond market. So mm -hmm. again, we're not chiding the Fed for getting it all wrong because we wouldn't have been more right than they are it's, it's just it's it's we're in we're, we're flying blindly as, as Andrew would say from his helicopter back and we, we've also got to take into account that obviously that you know Fed rates going up means that you know the rates that we're seeing offered in China are slightly less attractive. I mean, the reason yes. so many people have gone into China is because the Fed rate was at zero or negative. Now that you're starting to see a path where you can see Fed rates going up, that is going to change investor perception of how they look at China's mm -hmm. uh, debt situation. And they don't want a weaker renminbi because that, of course, r results in imported inflation. So mm -hmm. that's, that's part of their constraint. That's why the Chinese, I believe, are going to go more for fiscal policy this go-around than monetary, and that's why I have a big buy on China because the economic time there is set to improve whilst America they want to worsen it. Let me ask you then about these comments by Vice President, uh, Vice Premier Liu He said he's going to, uh, China's going to keep the stock market stable, support overseas share listings. He also encouraged institutional investors to increase their shareholdings. He also addressed the regulatory crackdown, suggesting that it may be nearing um, an end. What do you make of this intervention? It clearly had, uh, certainly in the short term, a very dramatic effect. Has, has he calmed market nerves and addressed the issues, the main issues that people have been concerned about over the, the Chinese market? I think he's put it on the agenda. What investors mm, now need to wait and see is whether or not there's you know, substantive action. And I think it's quite interesting. If you look at where the markets did or what the markets did yesterday, a lot of that was short covering. And it took the market back to, for Hong Kong, back to 20,000, which seems to be a key level. But mm. it, it stopped there. So I think you saw a lot of the government, you know, Team China coming in uh, with, a, you know, they had targets, you know, get China back, back above 3,000, get Hong Kong back above 20,000. And that's a level that they're happy at and that they feel will satisfy investors in the short term. Was there a signal there that maybe policymakers are recognising that they've gone too far with some of these prescriptions that they've been making, which clearly have damaged uh, Chinese stocks? I, I'm afraid not. I, I think that this, as Andrew was saying, is more of a, of a statement of intent as opposed to something Nazi boltsy this is what we're going to do about it. I don't think you can just sort of take hard, ingrained um, ideas of regulating the market very, very strongly and all of a sudden say, hey guys, it's a free market again. And not that I'm actually advocating that anyway. Um, maybe it was bad regulation as opposed to having regulation in the first place. So I don't think you're going to find big changes, but I do suggest to our listeners that you will find more spending on the fiscal policy side because they can't cut rates too much, otherwise the renminbi falls. That then jacks up the domestic inflation rate, the imported inflation, which is not good. I think you've got to, you know, the, the baseline here is that this 
meeting yesterday by the State Council addressed economic issues. It didn't address anything that's to do with doctrine. We haven't seen any change in the dual yes. economy or common prosperity. All they're saying is that you know they're going to bring the you know they're going to you know complete the exercise of regulating these large platforms. They're not going to give them more concessions. They're not going to make the, allow them to make super profits in the future. They're going to keep them in line. They're going to ensure that the general public are the beneficiaries. Uh, and I think you know investors very much need to be looking at the companies they invest in and to make sure that they are aligned with what Xi Jinping wants yes. to see happen. But you say that um, it doesn't address doctrine. What was uh, what was interesting was that common prosperity mm. seems to have taken a back seat, doesn't it? It was, I think, mentioned only once at the um, at the two sessions. Do you think there's a realization maybe that common prosperity that this policy at the moment it isn't working, is it? It's actually uh, the risk is it's going to make everyone poorer, not increase uh, prosperity. Well, I think there is, there is a problem there. I mean. It, it, Z has put doctrine in front of profit, uh, and that's obvious. Um, the problems they will have is really unemployment, and we saw the unemployment mm. number rising, and I, I don't think people have given enough credence to that. But, you know, in what he did in on the education platform, which was a huge employer for new graduates, which tend to be the people that, you know, become party faithfuls, um, it, it, it's wiped out their, you know, their whole careers just mm. after leaving university. So they do have a problem, but I don't think you can... Uh, I don't think Xi wants to be able to be in any way criticised that what he has said will happen won't happen because that's the, that is the social contract there. Mm. If we don't have elections, you leave us in power, we won't make bad decisions. So walking anything back uh, and reversing any policy is going to be incredibly difficult. Just to quickly build on that, Peter, the, uh, what Andrew was saying, there are 10 million graduates being released into the labor market this year. And when we read of the unemployment rate in China, we never read of the rural unemployment rate. That's where this book, Invisible China, by this fabulous Stanford professor, Roselle, is absolutely mandatory reading because he addresses the rural unemployment, the rural issues in China, which are much vaster actually than the urban ones. Okay, well, thank you very much for your thoughts there. That's per Personal Wealth Advisor, Enzio von Fahl, Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Twenty-five on the phone from Taipei, it's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, how have Taiwanese stocks uh, been performing this week, given the, the routes that we saw, well, first in the first couple of days of this week in both uh, Chinese stocks listed on the mainland in Hong Kong and the US, and then obviously that dramatic rebound uh, yesterday. Where, where does Taiwan fit into all of this? Uh, mostly Taiwan uh, in the last couple of days are looking at events in China, uh, COVID-related specifically, lockdowns what it would mean for production at Taiwanese companies that have manufacturing uh, facilities in China, which is still an important manufacturing base for Taiwan, including in the tech industry. So uh, people might assume that, that events in Europe, Ukraine, Russia, uh, are having an overhang on Taiwan stocks, but most people here are looking at uh, the, the COVID situation and also at, at the interest rate hike as well. And what is the impact of the interest rate hike on Taiwan? 
it depends on the valuation, especially the higher valuation stocks. Uh, I think it's going to follow the pattern of, of uh, places uh, or markets all, all over the world. There'll probably be some uh, reevaluations of those stocks downward. Uh, you know, people, of course, here are just like everywhere else are sensitive to the interest rate hike. And, and are foreign investors reevaluating Taiwan? Because um, one of the things maybe they're looking at is the potential for conflict between China and Taiwan, given what we've seen in Ukraine. Yeah, there's definitely been some some foreign investor exit. Uh, Conflict or the potential for conflict between Taiwan and China is uh, not a new issue. Mm. Foreign investors have had to deal with that uh, in the 30-plus years that they've been allowed to invest in the Taiwan market. Uh, These tensions uh, get higher. They sometimes uh, ratchet back down a bit. Uh, I I don't think that's necessarily a significant factor, though, in in asset managers and how they look at Taiwan at the moment. Has has the Ukraine war, though, sort of served as a wake-up call for investors in Taiwan? Uh, Yeah, because... People like us are going on the media or writing commentaries saying that there's similarities or explaining why there aren't similarities and politicians are talking about it. Uh, so people, people ask the questions. And then we should also remember, and I think this is an important fact as well, we're going into an election cycle here in Taiwan. There's local elections at the end of this year. And then about 13 months later, in January 2024, there'll be uh, national elections. Uh, so it's going to be in the news and people will talk about it. But uh, ultimately, uh, you know, is the threat higher today than, than, say, a year ago or three years ago or eight years ago? Uh, you know, experts are going to have difference, opinion, difference of opinion on that. Well, one of the reasons foreign investors buy Taiwanese stocks is because of their exposure to the semiconductor industry, which means largely Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing. That's a big favourite of, of foreign investors. If you want to diversify away from uh, Taiwan's semiconductor industry and, and its importance to global supply chains, what do you do? Where, where else can you go? Although there are, you use the key word, though, supply chain. I mean, there are other companies, uh, great companies here in Taiwan that are part of the semiconductor supply chain. Uh, you know, it's, it's, TSMC is not the one and only uh, company that, that makes the product, right? Mm. So there are other uh, packaging and testing companies, for example. And TSMC is not the only fab. I mean, there's, there's its, its competitor here in Taiwan, UMC. Uh, which is typically lagging behind TSMC in technology and size and, and other factors, but uh, has generally been a great company as well. Uh, so uh, Taiwan offers a lot of great opportunities for tech companies, and uh, I think that's why foreign investors stay here despite uh, you know, questions about war or Taiwan's own uh, unstable politics. The, the tech industry here is sensitive to global events, uh, market demand globally, uh, but very resilient to things specifically that, that might occur here in Taiwan or its relationship with China. And of course, TSMC is not the only global semiconductor manufacturer. There are competitors like uh, Samsung and Intel. That, that's an interesting point as well. Intel has made this uh, big announcement uh, about an investment in, in Ohio, which will still take a number of years until it, it comes online uh, and begins to produce uh, chips. Uh, Samsung is is a darling of the United States, just the way TSMC is, you know, with with the U.S. and state and federal government saying, "Come invest here." Uh, Japan uh, persuading TSMC to expand uh, facilities in in Japan as well. Uh, we'll also have to see 
how the new South Korean president factors into this with the U.S. proposing economic framework for the Indo-Pacific, although it still lacks specifics as well. It's it's such an interesting issue because, again, we're talking about countries and places that are friendly, but there's going to be intense competition for where the investment dollars go. Ross, thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Huge rally going on in Asian stock markets this morning in Australia. The SX200 is up 1.1% over in Japan. The Nikkei 225 has surged three, uh, 3.4% higher now. The Cosby in South Korea is up 1.8%. And we're looking at another uh, enormous rally in Hong Kong shares this morning. According to futures markets, uh, the Hang Seng is looking to open around about 1,240 points higher, which would take the index back above 21,000 to 20, around 21,300. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil a little bit firmer this morning at $98.27 a barrel. Gold is also firmer, trading at one thousand uh, sorry, uh, $1,927 an ounce. Uh, Brent crude oil, sorry, $98.17 a barrel. And that's it from me this morning. Do please stay tuned to Radio 3. Back chat is coming up with Jim Gould and, uh, sorry, uh, the COVID update is coming up with Jim Gould and James Ockenden in just a moment. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, one or two showers, sunny intervals during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be about 27 degrees. And the outlook is for it to be rather warm during the day in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 23 degrees, 89% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.32, here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. The government has unveiled a series of reforms to speed up the delivery of land for development. The Development Bureau says it wanted to change laws relating to town planning, reclamation, road and rail works, and environmental assessments. However, the CEO of Designing Hong Kong, Paul Zimmerman, says the changes won't save much time as it's the government's internal procedures that take a very, very long time. Mr. Zimmerman told RTHK that reducing the opportunity for public participation will lead to worse decisions. But he said not all of the proposals were bad. One very good one is one that we've been pursuing for a long time is to make sure that we can address the damage to high ecological value land, especially in Long Town South, by making some changes to the law that have been outstanding for a very long time. Now the government has a mechanism to make sure that they can ensure they can enforce. So far in South Long Town, government has been unable to enforce against the destruction of a lot of ecological valuable land. Another 300 medical staff have arrived from the mainland to take care of COVID patients here. Most will be based at the Community Treatment Center at Asia World Expo. Chief Executive Carrie Lam personally welcomed them at the Hung Yun Wai control point. They are all highly qualified and well-trained medical personnel working in the, the highest grade of hospitals in the Guangdong province. The other is uh, they have all been um, selected to come based on the knowledge of Cantonese, their knowledge of English, and also their previous anti-epidemic experience in Guangdong or in other parts of the mainland, just like in Wuhan. And uh, they're also very young, so uh, they will be um, a major uh, uh, boost to the uh, workforce of the hospital uh, authority. Health officials reported more than 29,000 new COVID cases yesterday, with a further 217 infected people dying in the past 24-hour reporting period. 
Overseas, the U.S. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates for the first time since 2018 to help tackle the highest inflation in four decades. It said the increase would be the first in a series of six similar rate rises this year. The chairman of the Fed, Jerome Powell, added that the war in Ukraine was expected to cut growth and increase prices. The committee anticipates that ongoing increases in the target range for the federal funds rate will be appropriate. Additionally, higher energy prices are driving up overall inflation. The surge in prices of crude oil and other commodities that resulted from Russia's invasion of Ukraine will put additional upward pressure on near-term inflation here at home. The Japan Meteorological Agency says a 7.3 magnitude earthquake has struck Japan's Miyagi Prefecture. Public broadcaster NHK says one person had died. The quake revived memories of the devastating quake and tsunami that hit the region 11 years ago, also in March. The news from RTHK.